This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio is brought to you by the IEEE Computer Society and by IEEE Software Magazine. Online at computer.org slash software. DigitalOcean is the easiest cloud platform to deploy, manage, and scale applications of any size, removing infrastructure friction and providing predictability so developers and their teams can deploy faster and focus on building software that customers love. With thousands of in-depth tutorials and an active community, we provide the support you need. DigitalOcean stands out of the crowd due to its simplicity and high performance with no billing surprises. Try DigitalOcean for free by getting a $100 infrastructure credit at do.co slash seradio. Welcome everyone to the Software Engineering Radio show today. Uh, my name's Kim Carter. I'll be your host for the day. And we've got uh, Michael Eisenblass as guest today. Michael works at Red Hat in the OpenShift team. He's a gopher, uh, that's a Golang programmer, a cloud native ambassador, and Michael tries to help folks to be uh, successful with container technologies, including Docker, CRI-O, Kubernetes, and OpenShift. Uh, Michael has uh, written books on container networking, Kubernetes, and uh, serverless ops. Uh, welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks a lot for having me, Kim. We've had shows on uh, Docker with uh, James Turnbull, uh, that was show number 217. And we've had Docker Security with uh, Diego Monica. That was show number 290. And another show we've had uh, that was related is uh, Network Security with Haroon Mia. That was show number 302. Uh, there's a relevant article from the IEEE Computer Society on today's topic. That's Docker. And, and another one, uh, Network Quality of uh, service and Docker containers. Today we're going to be discussing uh, container networking. So I'm um, just starting off with the container networking stack. What is uh, container networking and uh, why do we uh, need to network containers? Right, uh, let's step a bit back. So like what are containers? Like essentially a way to handle application level dependency management. So you know, if you, for example, know Python and you, know, you have virtual ends there where, where you can create virtual environments for, for Python rather than polluting the, the global space. That's the same thing with containers, just for any kind of, of language and binaries and so on. So containers package your application level dependencies nicely. You can ship them, you know, works the same on your laptop and on production everywhere. And at the end of the day, you know, you can run a container on your laptop and, you know, you can run a, a bunch of them or you can run many of them and then you need container orchestration. You know, the, the things like Kubernetes that actually manage these containers for you uh, at scale. And one of the big challenges there is actually how these applications in the containers communicate with each other. And for that, we need container networking. Cool. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, networking stack and what it's comprised of. Uh, when it comes to containers. Can you explain briefly the three layers? So that's uh, a low-level networking, container networking, and uh, container orchestration. Right. So in all honesty, this is not like, you know, not something like the OSI stack or TCP IP stack, some, something official. This is just something I came up with to easier explain stuff and make it easier for people to, to understand what is going on there. So. Um, the way I approach it is to look at low, lower or low-level stuff uh, that includes everything, right? You have the, the, the networking gear, the, the actual hardware. Uh, you might have virtual machine, virtualized stuff in there. You know, you have IP tables, so you have Linux 
uh, kernel features in there, you have routing, um, you have Linux namespaces, C groups, and so on. So everything, all these bits and pieces that usually from a developer perspective, you don't really care about. You don't actually see them, touch them usually, uh, but they exist and you, you, know, you should be aware of them. Uh, there's the container layer that is mainly around the actual container runtime. So the thing that essentially made Docker you know, popular and, and big. Um, nowadays we have OCI, the, the Open Container um, Initiative, and we have Rocket, and we have a couple of specs there, and I believe we get to that back later on, the CNI and CNM. Yeah. Um, so this is everything around the, the container runtime, really, uh, on that layer. And on top of that, as I mentioned already early on, if you, you know, you're not manually launching a container here or there, but you're kind of like on an industrial scale uh, launching and killing off containers, then you have a container orchestration uh, system like Kubernetes in place. And there you have to, the, the actual uh, container orchestration layer. So everything around you know, service discovery, ingress, egress, uh, how you compose things there. It might go so far that you have you know, service meshes there that even sit on top of this container orchestration layer, or, or you, some people consider them part of it. But it helps to think along these three layers because they typically um, are owned by different um, either stakeholders or, or different people focus on, on, on them. We talked a bit about how most networks today are becoming the responsibility of software engineers. Uh, that was in um, show 302, uh, Network Security with Haroon Mir. I also uh, cover this in my book um, on cloud security. Can you explain what uh, software-defined uh, networking is and why software engineers need to understand about it? I'm not sure if, if many people will be super happy with, with my definition of it, but at least that's how I see it. To me, it's mainly a marketing term, to be honest. It's, it's a useful term, but it's almost like, like the, you know, the term overlay network. It's pretty broad, and depending on who you talk to, which vendor you're talking to, and so on, you will hear different things, you know, different people. If you ask San Francisco and, and whatnot, uh, you will hear different things. What I will say is uh, the, the most important uh, characteristic, and, and that's what, what we are leveraging in, in the container world, is that uh, rather than being confined by, by the, the physical things that are in there, like a physical NIC and, and you know, uh, actual cables and so on and so forth, you are on a virtual level, right? You are essentially, you can via software define uh, pretty much everything. You can say, hey, I want to have uh, three, three NICs here. Uh, you define endpoints, you define, uh, you can give IPs to containers and so on and so forth. So uh, routing tables, everything, everything is on, on the software level, everything is, is super flexible there. And that allows, uh, and in the container world with, with you know, a container orchestrator with many, many containers that come and go, this is really the only way to, to go about. You cannot manually keep up with, with the pace that, that is going on there. Um, so in a sense, as I said, it's, uh, as with many other things, like, like overly networking, it's a bit of a marketing term, but the main uh, thing really is you're much more flexible and can automate the heck out of it. So you'd use tools like Terraform and that sort of thing to uh, build up your networks as software right so that you can basically um right uh, repeatedly create them is that pretty much will sum it up yeah yeah and, and you know it goes even further because if you think about you know like five or ten years ago or maybe 15 years ago we might have had like a handful of of virtual machines that we would manage um that would stay around for months or years uh, and now with containers we have hundreds of containers if not thousands of containers that you know might only stick around for a few minutes Right, so you do need this flexibility, you do need this velocity there. Mm -hmm. So we're just going to move into a section on single host uh, container networking. 
so there's four uh, single host networking modes based on the four Linux kernel network namespace drivers. Uh, they are uh, bridge, host, uh, which is faster but less secure, container, and none. Can you give us a uh, description of these modes and what they give us, how they work, and, and where we would uh, use each one? The, the background here really is that these four modes th that you mentioned are essentially have been popularized or have been established by by Docker, what, what Docker shipped with with uh, its runtime. So Bridge, which is still the default, essentially sets up a, a pair uh, in the, the container, which is essentially a, a network namespace, uh, and the host. So you have that pair there. Um, with the, the the obvious advantage that you're pretty pretty flexible in terms of ports, so you don't need to you know you can have for example two uh, containers that both uh, serve on port eighty, right? So that, that's something that, that uh, you usually cannot have, um, besides the fact that you usually cannot bind be below um, unless you have privileges below uh, port ten twenty four. Host networking, if if um, you know you're essentially uh, say you know it's it's fine you know share the, the network uh, with with the host you don't really care too much there it's, it's definitely faster than bridge but you don't care too much there in terms of, of security because you're essentially effectively removing the, the isolation there uh, container uh, that mode is essentially reusing an existing network so you cannot like you know in a docker file or whatever you cannot create that only at runtime you can say you know here I have another container already running please join this uh, this other uh, network here and we're using that in Kubernetes very heavily so there is actually um, a component in in every pod there that uh, spans up this this uh, namespace and every every other container in that pod joins that one uh, and non essentially means disable it's still there the network stack is still there uh, so you do have loopback uh, interface uh, if you do you know uh, if config whatever IP um, command but that's that's all. You you cannot you know uh, use any network. You, you don't have any external communication there. Yeah. So that all of them are really uh, useful to one way or the other. If you you know let's let's put it in in a very simple terms. If you're doing stuff on your laptop, right? Then then you're fine, right? Um, in any kind of clustered setup, if you have a bunch of machines somewhere, even if it's just a three node cluster none of them right uh, is is really really useful right you would yeah. uh, use others there are a couple of them in, in docker like overlay and then macvlan ipvlan and um, there are third-party plugins possible a couple of them there uh, but essentially for this use case of running a, a handful of containers on a single node or on your laptop uh, one of those four um, might be might be uh, useful so the container networking modes basically means every container shares the same uh, network stack, right? So they all have the same IP address. Mm -hmm. So how do you actually differentiate the, the containers? Like um, how do you actually contact them? It's just by the same IP address, but a different port, is that it? So they, like the containers themselves, they get uh, with, with the bridge networking, they do actually get their own IP address. It's It's really just that that essentially, yeah, you essentially have this, this VF pair that, that is, you know, one part, is effectively you have two namespaces, right? The, the one being in the container, the network namespace in the container, and the other one being in the host. And through the VF pair, these two can communicate. Mm -hmm. And and the, the IP there is really um, host local, so that, that, you know, doesn't go beyond that host. So you need to have some, if you actually want to get traffic to that, uh, into that 
container, you need to, to do some something outside of that. But I like these four local or, or yeah local um, container Docker network no nodes modes are, are nowadays um, unless as I said you manually launch a container uh, on your laptop not that interesting or widely used, right? You're really looking at overlay or, or whatever um, in, in a clustered setup when, you, when you're actually running containers in production, right? Right, right. Um, in terms of allocating IP addresses, uh, the bridge mode mostly takes care of this. Uh, what about the other modes? Right, so there, um, again, it, it very much depends on what your setup is. If you have um, a single host, so again, think of your laptop, you Typically, you know, you're fine. You can manually do that. Uh, you you carve up a, a certain range, probably in the private IP address range, and, and you're fine. Um, in a distributed setup, uh, that is something uh, completely different. And and there, it's it's mainly about either your um, you know network um, plugin or or third party solution like you know, Calico and Weave and Flannel and and whatnot. Um, they provide something like that out of the box, or the respective container network standard like CNI or CNM uh, have respective support for the plugins that do that. So IPAM providers that actually um, manage IP addresses throughout the cluster. So they might uh, have a separate database, for example, and assign uh, entire IP address ranges to nodes, um, or there is some gossiping going on, or whatever the, the actual way of spreading and, and managing these IP address ranges um, at the end of the day is. But the, the, the big challenge really is in a distributed setup where, um, especially if you're hitting like, you know, hundreds and more nodes, uh, you don't want to manually uh, arrange that. And uh, in, in, in Kubernetes land, it's even, even more uh, complex because you're essentially dealing with three uh, different uh, and distinct sets of, of IP address ranges uh, for the hosts, for the pods, and for the services. So depending on, on the, the container orchestrator, uh, you, you, you know, might need a, a more complete or, or advanced solution to, to manage these IP addresses ranges. Yeah, okay. Um, in terms of our managing ports, now we have fixed and dynamic port allocation. Mm -hmm. uh, how do each of these work, and in which cases would we use each one? Right, right, right. So as I said, with bridge mode, you're essentially you're fine because uh, uh, since each each um, container has its own, just just local but um, private but but has its own uh, IP address, uh, you don't need to you know worry about that. Uh, with host mode, you obviously uh, since the, you're essentially reusing or sharing the the network with the the host, uh, you you need to take care of that. You need to manually allocate uh, the the ports. You need to say, okay, I can only have you know, one web server on port 80, for example, or or whatever it is. Um, the container one is, is special because there it really depends on what you're reusing. If you're, for example, in, in Kubernetes land, it's not a problem because there the policy is um, IP per container, or technically by per, per uh, pod, because all the containers in a pod uh, share share one IP address. And well, non, <laughs> with non, you don't have that problem. But the, the, the biggest difference here is really host versus bridge. So that's why I, I guess why bridge is still the default um, in, in, you know, if you have a single uh, Docker daemon there, um, because people don't need to worry about bridge, uh, about uh, allocating the ports or, or managing the ports. They can just, you know, each of them, uh, each of the containers can simply use whatever port they like. I guess that's, that's one of the motivations why, why it's still the default there. 
There's quite a few things to consider in terms of uh, network security with uh, Docker containers. And by default, containers on the same host can communicate with each other due to the um, dash dash I double C uh, switch equals true, um, which means comms work by default. But there are risks that need to be um, considered. Uh, can you talk a little about um, a little bit about these risks and how engineers can mitigate them? Right. I have to say that many of these things are, or some of these things are really more um, of historical interest rather than you know, going forward. Things like links, for example, between containers are, are have been deprecated so that it's not an issue anymore. It's still there. So this inter-container uh, communication ICC is still there. This flag is still there. Um, so if you do set it to true, what it effectively means at the end of the day is that Docker, the Docker um, daemon there, will add a default rule to the forward chain in, in IP tables that effectively accepts everything there. Um, and if you set it to false, uh, then it, it will have a drop in there. So if you don't want that, right, if you don't want that uh, in the forward chain, then, then you want to have ICC false. Um, and and with, with that, all the implications. So unless you know, like, unless you have a really good reason to have it, just, you know, you know what you're doing and you have a really good reason why you want to have that. Essentially being able to, you know, coming from one network interface, going to another network interface, by default, all, all the packages are accepted. You probably want to set it to, to false anyways. Um, right. And as I said, some of the, the issues that were there initially around the um, a very primitive way of service discovery, which is, was called or is called links, uh, which essentially only worked on a single machine. So you, you could how do you spell that? L I N K, like a link, like on the, on the web, a link. So you can right. link you can link containers or li link Docker containers. So essentially, the idea was that you know you could explicitly say you know link this container to that container, and then these two containers um, uh, can can directly see each other and talk uh, to each other via this name. And since it a it 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 only works on a single host or single node, and the b it's it's really manual and brittle. Um, this link link based service discovery and linking of, of containers has been deprecated anyways, uh, and and with that quite a big um, chunk of, of the issues around inter container communication have, have gone away anyways. Yeah. But it's still there, so you know probably best set it to false, or I I, I would at least do it. <laughs> okay, so if one container uh, gets compromised, it could um, potentially access other containers on the host and compromise them as well. Uh, what else do we need to be thinking about in order to um, provide solid configuration and mitigation around this? Right. So, um, again, uh, difference between, you know, one single node and, and multiple um, nodes where multiple nodes you typically uh, have to take into consideration what kind of, you know, container orchestrator you're dealing with there in terms of what service discovery is offered and so on. But in the simplest case for, for a uh, single node, um, think of the the many, many command line options. Uh, and as I said, I'm not very familiar with the, the most recent version of what, what the defaults there are. Um, at the end of the day, everything what's happening there is just essentially a fancy way to manipulate IP tables. So if you are a network, network security, security guy, who you know your IP tables, then at the end of the day, uh, you can just you know look at what with certain settings, uh, defaults or whatever, what is the result in, in, in IP tables. You see all the rules there 
and and with that you have a pretty good idea of what is going on what is allowed what you know which containers can talk to what can you do something from the host and so on in general because you do do um, you know you are dealing with a with a, a daemon there uh, that runs on the host you have an attack vector there so you know um, anyone who has root access there can essentially own all the, the containers there. So you really want to want to make sure that you don't have that uh, available from from the outside world. Uh, there are other um, setups that that are possible that do not use this this uh, daemon based um, approach. There's Rocket there. There in the context of Cryo, which is Kubernetes specific, we have um, you know non non daemon based systems. Um, from a security perspective, this is certainly something that um, that is worrying. To up to a certain um, Docker version, it was also the the uh, problem with with upgrading this. So you you know you might have uh, figured there is a bug there, or you know some some security patches necessary, but you couldn't really upgrade the Docker container runtime while the containers were running. You had to shut down all the containers, um, so people would you know probably wait a bit longer than than. Uh, then it's advisable to, to upgrade. Um, so, you know, there are a couple of, of implications with these big fat demons, as my, my colleague Dan Walsh likes to call them. Um, and yeah, so in a nutshell, that is for, for, a, for a single node, that is the case. It gets more interesting and more complicated in, in the case of multiple hosts and like, yeah, container orchestration systems like Kubernetes. Yeah, so we're going to uh, dive into the section basically in your book um, around multi-host container networking. Uh, just before we do, can you, uh, you give um, your listeners a quick um, explanation of what IP tables is? In the simplest sense, one could say it is a Linux kernel level way of how to route and process, pre-process network packages that come in from a network interface and may, on the one hand, be forwarded to a local process. So that would be pre-routing in the input. Um, or uh, from one network interface, uh, another network interface that would be pre-routing forward and post-routing. Um, or from one local process to another process, so that would be output and input. So you have different... Um, ways how you can route these, these traffic, these, these package. And essentially what you're doing there is you have a, that's, that's the tables element. You have a long, long table uh, where you have rules and you say, yeah, if something comes in from that network interface and, you know, has this destination and so on and so forth, then drop it or, you know, forward it or whatever. And this, although it's, you know, from the UX, not very cool or, or interesting or whatever, this forms yeah. still pretty much the basis of, of, of pretty much everything we have there. There, there are nowadays, uh, you know, IPVS-based, um, uh, Docker Swarm has that, and then in Kubernetes, uh, we, we have that, we're starting to see support for that as well, simply because IP tables has a certain, depending on how you use it, you have a certain, you see a certain limitation. Uh, for example, in Kubernetes land, um, you have that, you know, you have entries, a couple of entries for each of the services uh, on every node. And if you're hitting like 10, 20,000 services, you have a very long IP table stuff there. And, you, you know, it just takes quite a while until you, you find something there. So if you have many, many services and you have many, many uh, uh, entries there, you, you really want something else like IPVS. But um, yeah, now it is, I would say it's still more or less the standard way. 
So you've mentioned IPS. Um, can you explain that a little bit? IPBS is essentially a, a more effective way to, to go about it. At the end of the day, you know, it has the same uh, underlying kernel structures that are manipulated, but it's rather than having you know, a linear search through these tables to these, these, these rules there, um, you have a, I can't really talk about the details, how it is implemented. It's, it's a, a more effective way to go about that, um, this problem of defining how the kernel is supposed to, to route the, the packages on the one hand, network interface, and on the other hand, uh, local processes. And uh, yeah, uh, I, I'm not an expert there. The only thing I know is for sure that apparently for, for large scale um, you know, services, if you have many of those, then um, you need something like that. I'm not saying that this is the only solution. I'm just saying I, I've seen it. It is already part of, of Docker Swarm and in, in Kubernetes land, uh, this was actually work led by Huawei, they they pushed that quite a lot. Um, that IPVS is you know establishing itself as a as an alternative to IP tables based uh, routing. There, can you explain what an overlay network is? Right. So, where do we start? I know you mentioned it was um, something around a marketing talk and that, but there must be a little bit more to it than that, yeah. Yes, yes. So in the widest sense, like if someone hears overlay, then the question is, you know, what's, what else is there? Is there an underlay? And indeed it is. So obviously before we had overlay networks and there always will be the, the underlay. So the actual, the actual stuff, right? The, the, the wires and, and NICs and, and all the stuff where it's actually happening. In the widest sense, if you think about it, also the internet is an overlay network, right? Uh, VPN. Many, many things count as overlay networks. In the context of container and container orchestration, we typically think of a, a stricter set of, uh, of, of overlay networks. And, you know, you, th there are many ways how you can differentiate them. You can uh, look at what level they're operating and so on and so forth. You can uh, differentiate between VXLAN or, or UDP overlay and so on and so forth. So there are many, many different ways. Uh, Docker, Docker Swarm, has its own Docker overlay network uh, built in. It has its own key value store. And one thing that one should not forget with an overlay network, you need some kind of typically key value store, distributed key value store, which in Docker's case is essentially built in raft based. Usually in Kubernetes land, we, we're more or less leveraging etcd, which is also raft based uh, key value store, but which is you know separate process outside. And yeah, so you need that to keep essentially the, the state. You need to know, you need to remember uh, who has what and, you know, all the assignments and so on. So you need some kind of distributed, typically key, key value store, as I said. So this overlay network essentially defines a virtual network. If you want a software-defined network on top of the underlay, on top of what is actually there, on top of what is the actual um, wiring there. And this means that it's, it's super flexible. Uh, you can, you know, define depending on, on the properties of your overlay network, pretty much everything uh, as, as you need it. You can, you know, throw it away. You can immediately program it in a way that it, you know, accommodates the, the velocity that you see in, in container land. So in a nutshell, overlay network, a virtual, very highly configurable network, software-defined network on top of, of an existing physical network. If that makes sense. Okay, yeah. Uh, what does uh, Docker support for overlay networks um, look like? Right, so you have a lot of, of players in that space. 
and it hasn't really i think it has even gone up in the last couple of years uh, you have on the one hand the established players right of course you have you know uh, the Cisco's and, and others there uh, but interesting there are a number a range of of uh, startups uh, that that have uh, done incredible innovations there chorus for example with flannel we've worked with with WeaveNet. Uh, there is MetaSwitch Project Calico there. There's OpenWeSwitch, which is now part of the OpenStack project. Um, there's OpenVPN. There's Kennel, which is essentially a kind of joint work between Calico and Flannel. Uh, there's Romana. There's Cilium, which is EPPF, PPF-based, as I have learned. You don't say the E anymore. Uh, there's Aporito. There, there, there are tons of, of these uh, services. So essentially, if you're talking about Docker proper, you essentially either use the built-in Docker overlay network or one of the third parties, as I said, Calico, Flannel, WeaveNet, uh, and as I said, Cilium being, being a, a, a rather recent addition to the whole circus, but a, a very interesting one because it's, it's based on, on EPPF. Yeah, so you talk about these quite a bit in your book as well, don't you? Yeah, a little bit, but you know, to be honest, since it's such a fast-moving space, and you know, projects are merging and this and that, and adding support for everything, it you know, a book can never actually keep up to date. Even a website is, you know, you would need to update it pretty much every day or every other day just to keep up to date. So I think the best that you can do in that space is if you have already like experience with, with something or preference for something, go with that. Or you use the, the stuff that is, comes out of the box. Docker typically has that, right? Has batteries included, and you know, then, then you have third-party integrations or plugins that you can use. I think with, with many things, it's a bit like a bit of like a taste thing, right? Or preferences thing. So some people find the one solution or the one approach uh, cooler. Of course, there are differences, right? So there are like you know, Calico is always focusing on, on or is always focusing still on, on policy stuff, uh, whereas others. You know, like Flannel's trying to be very like Unixy in the sense of that doing one thing easy, simple, small, not trying to do everything. And you know, it depends. Some people prefer the one or the other. All I'm saying is that there are many, there are many things to choose from. Uh, you might end up using or evaluating two or three or four. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if you do. And then you know, stick with what you you have the best experience with. Yeah, yeah. DigitalOcean is the easiest cloud platform to deploy, manage, and scale applications of any size, removing infrastructure friction and providing predictability so developers and their teams can deploy faster and focus on building software that customers love. With thousands of in-depth tutorials and an active community, we provide the support you need. DigitalOcean stands out of the crowd due to its simplicity and high performance with no billing surprises. Try DigitalOcean for free by getting a $100 infrastructure credit at do.co slash seradio. Could you give us a, an example of uh, one of them and how you'd go about basically creating an overlay network with one of those projects? So like, what are the steps involved? Right, big ones, yeah. right? So you have Docker um, with, with the CNM, the Container Network Model, which um, essentially... Yeah, it's, it's this, this one company that has established this, this uh, uh, standard and, and uh, follows there, right? And, and the, the canonical implementation there is the lib network. And there are a couple of, of plugins. Uh, Weave has Contiv, uh, Calico, PlumGrid, and so on. Um, and then on the other hand, which originally came out of, of Kubernetes, but nowadays is a, is a wider accepted standard, 
uh, supported by many, many different uh, orchestrators, including you know, Mesos and Cloud Foundry and so on, uh, is the Container Network Interface, CNI. Uh, and again, you will see many, many different, uh, many, many of the same players that you see in CNM uh, land, like Weave and then Calico, uh, and then many, many more uh, plugins from also from others, uh, because CNI is, is very, very lightweight. It's you know essentially just you know a very, very simple interface to add or remove uh, uh, capability there. And so depending on, on which one there you're using, so if, if you're using, for example, Docker Swarm, which obviously supports CNM, uh, Docker's network model. Um, that looks totally different to if you're using uh, CNI with you know, Kubernetes. Uh, e even if you're talking about the same thing, right? If you're looking at Weave, how to deploy that as an overlay network on, uh, on Docker Swarm or a as a third-party plugin on Docker Swarm versus CNI on Kubernetes, that looks different. And so it's, it's not so useful to, to say, hey, this is, you know, of course you can say here are the commands, here, you know, it's, Docker create network or network create, I can't remember the, the, the syntax there anymore. And then, you know, depending on if you're using the built-in or you're using a third party versus CNI, which is very lightweight, you essentially have just a, a JSON file where you have the configuration, and then you say, hey, do that for me. And the interface really is essentially just passing over that JSON file to the container runtime. The container runtime then goes off, does things. Or better say, in the other direction, the container runtime says, "Hey, uh, here I want to have this and this done." And the, the respective plugin then uh, does something like, you know, IP allocation or overlay network setup or whatever, and then reports that back to to the container runtime. So, depending on the model, in a nutshell, to, trying to answer your question, depending on the model used, CNM or CNI, the actual steps look, look pretty pretty different. The, the only advantage that you have probably is that if you are already using a concrete project or product, like let's say Calico, then moving from one you know, orchestrator to the other might be simpler because it's, it's just a difference in terms of how you set it up, how you enable it, but still the underlying characteristics in terms of you know, latency, scalability, reliability, and so on and so forth will be the same. So it's, it's certainly a good thing that both network models, container network models, um, essentially, in, in a nutshell, work, work pretty similar. Right. So What's the difference between an overlay network and a swarm? So Docker Swarm nowadays, this is really the entire container orchestrator, right? And one part of that, of Docker Swarm and Kubernetes and Mesos and Nomad and many, many more, is how to either out of the box or through you know, third-party integrations enable the multi-host container networking, right? So you could have uh, like in Docker Swarm case, you could have the, the, the overlay network built in where it has, you know, the key value store and everything more or less directly integrated. Whereas in Kubernetes land, you have these as separate components, right? You have the API server, which is one binary. You have etcd, which is one or more other binaries running somewhere else, but still having the same functionality. So it's kind of like monolith versus microservice architecture. But Docker Swarm really being the entire container orchestrator where networking, you know, enabling this networking, being able that the different containers or applications running in different containers on, on different nodes uh, can communicate with each other. And also ingress, obviously, is part of, of the, the, the responsibility of a container orchestrator. OK, cool. How do we go about encrypting traffic between uh, all containers on an overlay network? I'm assuming this is going to be uh, different depending on what type of overlay product you're using. Right, right, right. And nowadays, I would almost think, or, or I don't have hard data to be honest, but 
I would say that, especially in, in the context of, of service meshes, it's increasingly popular that you essentially have mutual TLS between all the endpoints involved. So even within a cluster, even you know, the, the bunch of machines where you're running your containers, even there between all, all of the endpoints, uh, whatever the endpoint might be, that you know, might be the, the container itself, it might be a, a sidecar like, like Envoy, for example, that even between these endpoints within the cluster, everything is mutual TLS, everything is you know, encryption on the wire, end-to-end, -end, uh, everything is, is there. And then it pretty much depends on, on the scale, right? If you have large right. scale, you really want to have a service mesh that part of its control plane actually has something that you know, takes care of the certificates, uh, rotation, and all that bits. But in, in general, if you buy into that, if you, you know, are aware of, of the, the implications there, what happens, especially you know, in, in a multi-tenant environment, if you're in a not-so-trusted environment, you're sharing resources with others, you probably want your like containers, all of them, even within the cluster, being encrypted on the wire as well. And I'm not saying that all of, of the solutions supply that out of the box, but as I said, increasingly you do find like Istio, for example. In Istio's case, I'm, I'm hundred. You know, I, I know there is a component in there. I think it's called Citadel, if I remember correctly, that actually takes care of that uh, mutual TLS um, for every service that is there. And sometimes, as I said, you find this functionality also in what I would consider lower level, you know, things like Cilium or Weave or, or Flannel or whatever, that also take care of that in, in, in the context of, you know, providing the network. And on top of that, they also provide end-to-end uh, -end encryption on the wire. Right. So it really depends what you're using as to who or what is responsible for providing that safe link. Yes. Uh, what are some of the uh, network plugins Docker provides and how do we use them or how do we go about using them? So we talked about the plugins itself already a bit, right? In, in, in general, they are the default ones that are, that are uh, there, that are non-third party, whatever they're called, default or, or built-ins or whatever, that are essentially on the one hand Mac VLAN and, and also IP VLAN. And on the other hand, the built-in overlay network. Uh, so this is when you say Docker create network where you, you know, can directly create these multi-host networks uh, out of yeah. the box. And everything else, the actual third-party network plugins, as I mentioned, things like Calico and Flannel and, and WeaveNet and uh, Romana, Cilium and, and others that, depending on, on what they are based on, realize things differently, but at the end of the day, more or less all address the, the same issue, and that is enabling applications that run in containers on different hosts to communicate uh, transparently. So you don't need to, you know, know is the container running on the same node or on some 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 else node. You, you can just, you know, from the point of view from an application, you can just use the service discovery that is that is uh, the, the, the container orchestrator offers and can can just talk to that other container uh, as if it's a, a local process. All right. So so what are some of the issues um, that often arise out of IP address management and and how are these addressed? So, in general, it's very often the, the reason why why it's challenging is very often that you have a bunch of, of uh, you know nodes. So you might have thirty, hundred, even a couple of hundred nodes, and you have many hundreds. You might have you know ten, twenty, fifty, whatever containers per per node. So you end up having hundreds or thousands of, of containers, and that means that especially, and now I'm talking a little bit with the assumption that we're talking Kubernetes land, it's not, not 
the case for every container orchestrator where you essentially have this requirement, you have an IP per, per container. And that is something that, you know, it means that you, you need to be able to carve out many, many uh, IP addresses and, and that, uh, you know, how do you go about that? How do you reuse stuff? How do you assign stuff? Do you centrally manage it? Do you somehow gossip it through the entire cluster? So the challenges there are really the combination of scale and, and speed, right? You need to be able to manage large number in, in a, in a in a rather quick way. The other challenge, which is probably not challenge, it's more to do with the fact that cloud providers still haven't widely adopted IPv6, because in IPv6 case, you have many, many more uh, addresses there. You don't, you, know, you don't have the, the, the big challenge there, or not as much of a challenge. But we are seeing only you know, slowly uh, support for, for IPv6 in, in container land. So it's not, not the case that every container solution has already you know, IPv6 support uh, out of the box. When we get there, I guess, then this, this challenge is a, a little easier to address then. Can you give us an example of how you uh, normally go about, I guess, managing these IP addresses? Or is it basically just up to the orchestrator? You just uh, leave everything up to the orchestrator? I mean, how much uh, manual intervention is actually involved? So, for example, if you have Kubernetes, uh, you essentially, you're required to, and that depends a bit also on the installer and, and you know, good practices around that and you know, environment, are you, you know, um, installing it? something yourself with you know kubeadm for example or or um are you launching a Kubernetes engine as it's called now um cluster uh, where you don't get to to do these things uh, directly but at the end of the day you you need to carve out certain ip address ranges so there are good practices there where you say you know uh, here's what you should do and here's what you should not do sometimes it's it's a matter of policy sometimes you know the organization says okay we we only assign private uh, ranges it, it pretty much depends on, on the environment. Are you on-premises, are you in the cloud, uh, what, what your preferences there are. But essentially, at the end of the day, you would add install time, more or less, define these IP uh, address ranges. In the case of Kubernetes, as I said, uh, you need one for one range for nodes, uh, which typically is, is you know, you, you don't change the number of nodes every day and until you, you reach 100,000, you typically have a, a rather good idea uh, what what the, the number of nodes in your cluster is, although that might you know throughout the scaling, that might change a, a little bit. But it's not that you know you have today ten and tomorrow fifty and the next day uh, five hundred or whatever nodes. So that is is fairly doable. With pods, it's it's pretty tough because there can be many pods and, and they come and go. And every time uh, you create a new pod, you you need a new IP address. To, you need to assign a new IP address. And services on the one hand they're they're much more stable, right? So in, well, that's the defining feature of a service in, in Kubernetes that it, it, it provides a stable virtual IP, so an IP that is not connected to a network interface, so you can't ping it. But because of the implementation as it's currently done through through Kube proxy, it effectively means that in on the routing layer to actually get a package to, to a pod that sits behind the service, it needs to, to update uh, potentially a lot of, of different uh, rules across all the nodes on, uh, through IP tables. And that is a certain limit, limiting factor there, which is orthogonal to the IP allocation, but still you, you need to take that into, into consideration when, when uh, using IP tables directly. 
yeah, so in, in a nutshell, pretty much depends on environment, um, your preferences or, or policies organizationally, and the container orchestrator you're using. They have different uh, requirements for what kind of ranges you need to either before you're at install time, or if you have, you know, typically in, in Kubernetes land, you, you would use a CNI plugin that takes care of that dynamically, which is probably one of the best ways to go about it, if you can, if you can afford that, right? So uh, Infoblocks, I know, is an IPEM, IPEM driver for CNI. Right. But, you know, if you have a full-blown IPEM, so IP address management solution, um, you know, you might end up paying someone some serious money, right? I'm, I'm not... <laughs> I, I don't know the details about the prices, but I can imagine that uh, you know it's, it's uh, <laughs> you know this this quality comes with with probably a, a hefty price label there as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, so we're just going to move into a short section on orchestration. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a few different roles involved in orchestration, uh, such as organizational primitives, scheduling, uh, automated health checks, auto scaling, upgrade strategies, and service discovery. Can you talk a little bit about these? Right. So if you think about it, what's the role of a, of a container orchestrator? Essentially, it's about the lifecycle management of containers, right? So uh, you as a, as a user say, hey, you know, here is my container image, uh, run it for me somewhere. And as a container orchestrator, you, you, know, you have an overview of all the nodes about how they are utilized. Uh, you might have certain preferences. You, for example, as a user could say, Hey, uh, make sure that this uh, pod or this container, in this case, pod is Kubernetes specific, lands on a node that it has, I don't know, that is SSD backed or has a GPU or whatever. Or you could say, you know, make sure that these containers don't get scheduled on the same node. You might have, you know, some multi tenancy requirements or don't schedule database containers on the same nodes as, I don't know, some, some stateless application, whatever the policy there is. And you also have organizational primitives, which um, like traditionally, um, for example, in Marathon, you had things like groups where you can group your applications together and then say essentially, you know, hard code dependencies can say, you know, let's say the front end should only be uh, started when the, the back end is available, when the back end passes all health checks. One of the, the innovations that Kunditis really brought to the table and, and that is also pretty well described by, by the Googlers from their lessons learned from you know, running, running uh, Borg in, in production for, for more than a decade and then trying new things with Omega, are labels. And labels are very, very lightweight and very, very uh, flexible way of organizing things. So rather than having a hierarchical, so grouping essentially means hierarchical, a fixed way of, of viewing how things are organized, you're labeling things. And that allows different stakeholders to manage, to group things in different ways and, and what is important to them. So for example, uh, for someone, a release engineer, whatever, might say, you know, I'm only interested in knowing is that container in development, testing, staging, or production, right? That's all I care about. I don't care who it belongs to or whatever. I only care about that. Someone else might say, you know, billing or whatever, internal customers might say, you know, to me, it's important. Does that, you know, is that someone who has a big budget or like, you know, internal budget holder number or whatever? Someone else might say, you know, I'm interested in how, um, what kind of security checks or policies have been applied. So 
Each and every one gets to use their labels and can query using these labels and with that dynamically organize uh, the view on the containers themselves as, uh, with preferences they have to do their job best. So these are the organizational primitives. And then there are a number of things that you know, affect or make it easier for the orchestrator to uh, automate things like you know, uh, health checking, being able to automatically scale. Uh, that's typically by default based on low-level metrics like CPU utilization, memory utilization, and, and um, increasingly we're moving over to uh, custom metrics where you go with things like, in my application, I typically have you know, 50,000 requests per second, and you know, now I see an increase to 80,000, and that means I, I want to have three more replicas, for example. And then upgrade strategies. So in what way are you rolling out a new version? Are you replacing existing? Do you do a rolling upgrade? And so on and so forth. And service discovery, which, yeah. So labels are a Kubernetes-only um, concept, are they? Yes. Right. Labels to organize any kind of object. In Kubernetes, it's not, you know, it's anything. You can, you know, label a part, you can label a deployment, you can label a node, you can label everything. And depending on the kind of object, they serve different roles, right? An administrator might have a different use case for a label to, you know, somehow make sure that they know what, what nodes there are, like, you know, label, you know, with different hardware characteristics or label with in what rack they are or whatever, whatever they need to do their job versus, um, I don't know, someone uh, in the security team looking at, at things like different namespaces or whatever and labeling things there so that they know uh, what, what's going on. And they are also first-class citizens in the sense of that you can query them. So you could say, you know, give me all containers or pods really in, in Kubernetes that are owned by Kim and that are in stage production and that uh, have uh, not been updated for three weeks, right? So you have these uh, labels and by, by the selectors, by using, think of it like SQL in a very, very, very simple way of, of doing like a very stupid, naive way of doing SQL, you can combine these different labels and, and uh, through the selectors get exactly the subset of you know, whatever kind of resource or object, parts, services, nodes, or whatever it is uh, that, that you are interested in. So what are some of the other organizational primitives? So that's, as I said, that's uh, originally what you would find traditionally in, in, in Marathon and other places would be things like groups where you would have a hierarchical star static um, ordering um, or organization, how you actually declare dependencies and, and group things and so on. Um, and one innovation that, that uh, Kubernetes brought to, to the table uh, was labels and, and these labels. And, and uh, I'm not sure if others, I'm not sure, for example, if, if Nomad, uh, Swarm or, or Marathon have picked it up labels. But yeah, that's, that's the, the, I would argue, the most flexible way to organize things. And that's the... Nowadays, I would argue the, the uh, dominant, with Kubernetes being the, the dominant container orchestrator, the, the dominant way of, of organizational primitives there. Right. So in terms of orchestrators, we've got the likes of Docker Swarm, Mode, Apache Mesos, HashiCorps, Nomad, and, and Kubernetes, I guess. Um, so, so which platforms do these run on? Do they, uh, do they run on all platforms? or? Yeah. Okay. So you can think of of these container orchestrators 
a bit like it's, it's a different functionality but a bit like like a pass right what do you need to run a pass well you need uh, an operating system right typically you need some Linux distribution or whatever, um, and then you can install that pass. Could be in a single node, could be distributed, whatever. But pretty much the same thing uh, is, is, is happening there. And originally, as I said, it was called container orchestrators. Typically nowadays, the marketing term is, is CAAS, so container as a service, right? Like pass, platform as a service, this is CAAS, CAS sometimes. Um, so, you know, if if uh, if you want to be cool, you go like, hey, which CAS you you got, and then you got yeah, Kubernetes, Docker Swarm, Mesos, Nomad. Now, it was quite interesting for some, let's say, three years from roughly 2014 to 2017. And remember, I before I joined Red Hat in, in the beginning of 2017, I used to work at Mesosphere on on Mesos Marathon DCOS. So around that time, from 2015 to 2017. And that was pretty much the, the you know the high high point of the container orchestration uh, wars. So that that was uh, where no one really knew because Kubernetes was was very new, just came out. Docker Swarm was you know Docker, everything was Docker, so it, it sounded like and, and the, the the idea was that yeah maybe Docker would make it. And Masses Marathon had also quite a, a big mind share. So it was at some point in time you could say you know yeah you, you would have two or three equally powerful and, and uh, widely used uh, systems. Then later on, HashiCorp entered the, the container orchestration with, with Nomad, which has a slightly different uh, focus and, and, um, and orientation. But essentially, we, we, you know, besides those, we obviously have many, many more things that, that uh, also uh, started to do containers. Uh, all the, the configuration management systems somehow started to, to do container orchestration as well. And at the end of the day, by 2017, end of 2017, Kubernetes essentially won this container orchestration war. So you can nowadays, it doesn't matter who you ask. It's, it's a bit like, you know, yes, there are people that use FreeBSD and NetBSD or whatever, but Linux is dominating pretty much everything. 90% or whatever is Linux out there. And in the same way, like it or not, Kubernetes has, has you know, with come beginning of 2018 has essentially it's it's supported everywhere. Everyone has to, you know, even big big Amazon uh, at some point in time, uh, AWS had to also support uh, Kubernetes uh, in in their uh, offerings. So it's it's fair to say that nowadays um, Kubernetes is is the dominating uh, container orchestrator. That doesn't mean that that the others are, are gone. It, you know, people still are using Swarm, still still are using Mesos and Marathon and, and Nomad. It's just that nowadays there is no question if you want to get into that game. The question is just, you know, should I directly jump to uh, <laughs> function as a service, serverless, Lambda, or should I, I still be dealing with, with containers? But the question is not, you know, should I, should I you know, be doing Mesoswarm or Nomad uh, or Kubernetes if you, know, you want to have a, a good, good guarantee that, that your knowledge is, is directly applicable, then, then maybe Kubernetes is the best choice now. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, nodes a few times. Uh, are they a, a Kubernetes concept? I'm assuming they're a host for a container or a collection of containers. Yes. Yeah. Right. It's just it's just a host. Like the the the, the technical the Kubernetes documentation uses node or worker node as that's the one host or the one 
virtual machine or physical machine that actually hosts the container runtime and, and the, the other bits that are there, kubeproxy, the kubelet, and so on, that runs the containers for you. Yeah. So what are the main components in Kubernetes and what are they responsible for? Right, so in, in a high, very high level, there are two parts in, in Kubernetes. The one thing is you know, called the control plane, previously called the master. I find control plane much, much better because it's, you know, actually is, you know, it's not just one, one binary, it's, it's a couple of things. It's the API server, the controller manager that implements all the control loops. Uh, if you, for example, are dealing with deployments and services and whatnot, for each of these resources, you have a respective controller, which technically is just a, a go routine in the controller manager. And then you've got the scheduler that actually, you know, uh, does this mapping of here you have a, a container, actually a pod in Kubernetes, and uh, here is a node where, where I'm running this, this pod on. So the decision on which node to launch a pod. And then you have the worker nodes. Typically, you know, nowadays you might have 20, 30, 40 nodes uh, usually. And on each of the worker nodes, you have at least three things running the kubelet which you can think of the kind of like the local supervisor. So, right, in the same way that you have the API server that uses etcd to, to keep its state around, in a control plane you have as a local node level supervisor, you have the kubelet that then talks to the container runtime, which is, for example, Docker, uh, OCI-based things like RunC or whatever, uh, Rocket. So the, the container runtime that actually you know, knows how to pull a container image from a registry, how to launch that container, and so on and so forth. It manages the lifecycle of a single container. And then you have kubeproxy, which is part of the Kubernetes service discovery story and realizes and establishes these virtual IPs for the services. So essentially make sure that there is traffic that comes from within the cluster from some other pod and, and finds its way to a certain pod that, that sits behind the service. So these are the components that, that run on each of the, the worker nodes. And obviously you need a container registry for the, the runtime to pull the, the container uh, image. And then, at least in case of, of Kubernetes, um, you need typically what, what an admin takes care of, some kind of uh, external user management. So Kubernetes doesn't, you, know, you, you can't create users or whatever. They're, they're, there are identities for, uh, for applications called software service accounts, um, which represent identities for, for applications. But Kubernetes doesn't, like it, it can use, it can understand, you know, this is the user and this is the group or whatever, but it doesn't manage users for you. So you need some, some LDAP, Active Directory, SAML, Kerberos, whatever, something external that manages your users and group. And then you can, you know, you have integrations to bring that into Kubernetes. Can you give us a bit of an overview of Kubernetes networking? Like, so containers can communicate with all other containers without NAT. Uh, nodes can communicate with all containers and vice versa without NAT. And the IP container sees itself as the same IP as others see it. Is that correct? Right, right, right. So what's interesting there is, I think, the fact that Kubernetes is not prescriptive there, right? Kubernetes essentially just says, look, here are a couple of requirements I have and, you know, how you realize them. I don't care as long as these three requirements that you mentioned are met, right? So um, there is no netting. There is per, uh, technically it's per pod. So a pod is a, a collection of a couple of containers that are guaranteed to be scheduled on the same node. 
uh, that each of them can communicate with any other in that container without any netting, right? So each of them has, each part has its own IP, gets a new assigned if it restarts some, even on the same node, has, has always a, an IP. And the nodes can talk to the containers and the containers can talk to the nodes and amongst each other is without netting. And um, also, which is also different to, to uh, Docker, where depending on what you're using, you uh, have different IPs that you see from the outside world and the inside world, that yeah, the IP, the container sees itself is, is the same that, that others, uh, other hosts or, or containers or pods in, in the network see, see that uh, container. And that is essentially because it's, it's not prescriptive. It just says here the requirements, leaves a lot of flexibility to, to how you implement it, right? You, you can do that bare metal with, with some manual configuration. You can use uh, any kind of SDN there. The downside is, however, that because Kubernetes doesn't supply anything out of the box there, that you effectively are forced to uh, roll your own Kubernetes distribution, right? This is one of the decisions that you, uh, if you want to use Kubernetes, you need to make, right? You cannot, there is not anything out of the box like you have with, in, in Docker's case, with the Docker uh, overlay network that you can just use, right? So at the end of the day, your decision is either I roll my own Kubernetes distribution, and there are other bits and pieces where you also need to make decisions where you say, okay, uh, especially on premises, you know, what kind of storage uh, am I going to use or ingress? How do I get uh, traffic in there? So there are a couple of other things, but most importantly, this Kubernetes networking, there is nothing out of the box there. So if you don't do it yourself, then you can use one of the over 30 certified Kubernetes distributions. But at the end of the day, you need to use a Kubernetes distribution, right? In the same way that you cannot use the Linux kernel on its own, you need to have a Linux distribution. In the same way here, you have, uh, you're dealing with a Kubernetes distribution. And, and if you roll it on your own or you know, pay us or someone else to do it, that's something, that's a different discussion, right? That's buy versus build. But you have to deal with a Kubernetes distribution. And one of the main reasons is exactly the Kubernetes networking. Okay. What are some of the distributions? Oh, there are so many, as I said, there are over 35 or whatever. One of them I can talk about, that's, that's what pays my bills, is OpenShift. has <laughs> uh, been around for quite a while. But there are so, there are so many. Like, typically, the, the most interesting one I would argue is if you are uh, using one of the managed community services of the big three, right? So if you're in Google or Azure or, or AWS, then each of them obviously has their own Kubernetes distribution. They typically are not very public about that, right? It's just there. You, you don't really get to see the, the, the bits. And I mean, you, you, of course you see, sometimes you have options. You can say, okay, I'm, I want to use Flannel versus Calico or whatever. And there are certain preferences as well the, of the cloud provider towards certain solutions, but you, you don't really get to see how the, the whole distribution looks like, right? And then there are, um, you know, very minimal ones that, you know, try to be very opinionated, but, but very lightweight. There are things like OpenShift that, you know, on the one hand is a Kubernetes distribution, but on the other hand also provides a lot of pass functionality, uh, ships with a container registry and, and the build system and so on and so forth. So uh, it, like, as I said, there are currently already over 30 certified. So the CNCF, the Cloud Native Compute Foundation, essentially ha has a very lightweight process and she says, okay, here are the conformance tests, run them. Yeah. Uh, so e each and everyone can just simply, you know, figure out for themselves if they are, if they are compliant or not. Um, and once you're done, you send it in, and, and then, uh, and then, since it's so transparent, there is no, you know, politics or whatever involved if you pass it. 
you're conformant and uh, you can call yourself a, a, a an certified Kubernetes distribution. <laughs> so say I'm a developer and I want to set up some orchestration on Kubernetes locally so that I can test it. Can I just set up a Kubernetes distribution locally in order to develop and test? Is that easy enough to do? Yeah, so typically for developer workflows, you would have things like Minikube or yeah. Kubernetes as part of, of Docker for desktop. Right. There are, there's Minishift, which is OpenShift uh, in, uh, out of the box in, in a VM. So essentially what you have is more or less, in all cases, you have a VM that essentially wraps up all the dependencies, has essentially a single node setup. And all you need to do is, uh, depending on, on the kind of offering, sometimes it's CLI only, sometimes it's a nice clickety-click UI, but right. you essentially just launch a VM that has all the components in there. And they're actually pretty great. They're like, for most things, they are, they are perfectly okay. Uh, obviously, what you can't really do is having uh, the effects of a real distributed system. I'm not even talking about scale testing or whatever there. I'm really talking about, you know, what happens if you have network partitions and, and delays between different nodes. And so you, you simply cannot do that with, which is obvious, right? If you have everything in one VM, right. you, you simply cannot uh, know how, how your application really works in a distributed setup. But for, you know, oh, I want to try that out. I want to quickly deploy something, whatever. They are perfectly fine and, and very straightforward to set up. There is not, not much that you need there. I mean, you, you need some some VM driver there, uh, get it from VirtualBox or, or whatever, but uh, very straightforward to set up. Okay, so I've got another section on our service discovery. We're getting sort of pretty close to time. I'll just see if I can spring a couple of questions. In terms of registering a container, what happens when the scheduler dies and the registered containers keep running? Um, essentially, the containers are now running rogue. Is that correct? Yes, yes, yes. So essentially, it's pretty, pretty much the case with all the different container orchestrators that if the scheduler or whatever it is, might be the API server in Kubernetes case or whatever, a control plane component dies, then all the containers on the worker nodes uh, continue to, to work. They don't notice that. The only thing that you cannot do is you cannot do updates. You cannot, you know, for example, roll out a new version or if one of the pods or containers dies and, and you, know, it's, you know, it will not be scheduled somewhere else because there is no control plane around to figure out that this container has died and needs to be, uh, you know, launched somewhere else. So as long as you don't have any, like, network service discovery related, uh, like uh, depending on some FQDN or whatever that, that is not there anymore or that doesn't resolve to an IP, um, you should be fine, right? So everything, um, and, and typically, you know, I mean, you, you typically, if a scheduler or API or whatever dies, you're typically trying to get it back up and running uh, in a certain point of time, right? So you're not, you know, letting it, <laughs> letting it in that state for, for weeks and, and weeks, but, you know, you're trying to fix that. And if it comes up within, within an hour or two, that's fine, right? And, and typically also dealing with a couple of uh, replicas there. So if you don't, if you only have one replica of a pod or of a container there, then maybe yeah, you're in trouble. But if you have a couple of them and then due to whatever reason, one of them or two of them dies, okay, yeah, maybe you, you know, your application slows down a bit, but it's still there and it's still serving. So when the uh, scheduler comes up again, does it find the rogue containers? I mean, how does it go about finding them? So this very much depends on the container orchestration system. But at the end of the day, what happens is you have on each of the nodes, you have a, a local supervisor. So in case of Kubernetes, that's, that would be the kubelet. And that essentially sends, you know, heartbeats to the control plane component saying, yeah, I'm still around. I'm still good. I'm still good. And you yeah. know, maybe uh, in, in cases, uh, usually also saying like, hey, you know, 
I have so and so many containers running and you know I have this memory pressure or whatever other status information it sends to the to control plane. And so that that will just continue and, and as long as things are happening on, on all of the different sides, so you know, both in control plane and, and on the node or nodes, it you know just restarts and self-heals and, and at some point in time picks up, you know, where it has left off. If the the state, if the distributed state or the, the cluster state is not corrupted. That is probably the, the, the hardest bit, right? If, if, for example, in case of Kubernetes, if, if etcd is down, like, you, you know, you can still, it's, it's the same. It doesn't really matter. If, if etcd is down, then you can change the state, right? It doesn't really matter if the API server is up because you can't change anything. You cannot read, you cannot write the state. It doesn't matter. So the, the, the assumption really is that's why you typically run, you know, three or five etcd servers there together that, that you have a guarantee, pretty much a guarantee that, that etcd never goes down. And what's etcd for, for communities? It's Zookeeper for Mesos and so on and so forth. So each of the container orchestrators has their typically distributed key value uh, system that has the, you know, this, this is the, the ultimate system of records that knows exactly the state of the entire cluster. Yeah, so does that component go down occasionally as well? And if it does, I guess, um, <laughs> I guess basically you've just got to uh, shut all your containers down. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I've also noticed you've got the uh, Kubernetes cookbook, right. and you've got the uh, Kubernetes uh, security book that you're working on. Are they done, or are you still working on those? Yeah. So the Kubernetes uh, cookbook came out in March, I believe. So that is out there. It's it's uh, as far as I gather quite successful. So a lot of people, I get, you know, uh, people telling me it's cool and, and I see it online and whatnot. Kubernetes security, which I'm writing with Liz Rice from, from Aqua Security, we literally just submitted the, the final draft. So we're now going in production. And I think it should be out by, by end of 2018. So like, you know, October, November, who knows, uh, around that time. Cool. Looking forward to those. Especially the security one. Cool. So, yeah, thanks for joining us today, uh, Michael. It's been um, educational and fun. Cool. Thanks a lot for having me, Kim. It was really fun. Uh, for Software Engineering Radio, this was Kim Carter, your host. Thanks. DigitalOcean is the easiest cloud platform to deploy, manage, and scale applications of any size. Removing infrastructure friction and providing predictability so developers and their teams can deploy faster and focus on building software that customers love. With thousands of in-depth tutorials and an active community, we provide the support you need. DigitalOcean stands out of the crowd due to its simplicity and high performance with no billing surprises. Try DigitalOcean for free by getting a $100 infrastructure credit at do.co slash seradio. Thanks for listening to SE Radio, an educational program brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine. For more about the podcast, including other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. To provide feedback, you can comment on each episode on the website or reach us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, or through our Slack channel at seradio.slack.com. You can also email us at team at se-radio.net. This and all other episodes of SE Radio is licensed under Creative Commons License 2.5. Thanks for listening.